currently a New York life insurance agent in Fargo, not in New York. But prior to that, he pastored churches in Kansas and West Virginia. He has taken a season out of ministry that allowed him to move to North Dakota to marry his bride, Anne. Jack and Anne have been attending Calvary since the summer. Jack has been a good friend to Ben and is one of his seminary classmates. He will tell you whether he taught Tom Hanks to act, but I do can tell you this. Jack Hanks cooks a very mean burrito for men's hour power. Please, please give a warm welcome for Mr. Jack Hanks this morning. First, I want to thank Ben and the elders for giving me the opportunity to, to preach. Um, and also, before we begin, I want to thank everybody who works behind the scenes because today's been a, one of these, it's the, the Sunday after Christmas. And I mean, everybody's tired. We've had a great week. And there's been a few technical difficulties. And they're just troopers back there. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. But before we begin, let's, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross and offer salvation to us. I pray that you would just give me the words to say that that your word would be glorified and that you would be uplifted. And allow us to live what we believe. In your son's name, amen. Two thousand one was one of the worst years of my life. Not the worst, but one of the worst years of my life. And is this on? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Two thousand one was one of the worst years of my life, and it's not because of what you think. You see, Christmas of two thousand one. I, I woke up and, and I love Christmas. You can ask my wife. Like, I mean, I get up and I'm, I'm excited, and it's not because I'm getting gifts. I, I'm not that I don't like gifts. Everybody likes gifts. But it's because it's God came down. God came down and he dwelled among us and he died for us. And so I get really excited about Christmas. But 2001, I woke up and I, I began to just cry out to God. Why? Why? You see, in 2001... That summer, I was a missionary in Slovakia with Campus Crusade for Christ, which now is known as Crew. And uh, during that summer, I, I get a one of my friends is like, "Dude, West Virginia is on the news." That's where I'm from, is West Virginia. I'm like, "What do you mean? It's underwater." I turn on the news, and in Slovak, the guy's talking about how West Virginia had had one of its worst floods in, in history. It's history and how the, basically the entire southern part of the state was underwater. And so I began to make phone calls. And, and luckily my grandfather, who had just restored our childhood home, he literally just restored it in June, was alive. But he's like, the house floated away. I'm like, what? The house floated away. And now it's buried under about six feet of mud. I get home that summer, 
And in August, I began school. And I get a call from my sister. She says, like, Jack, you need to come home. Our mom's dying. You see, my mother had suffered from multiple sclerosis since my she found out she was had it when she was pregnant with my sister. And we watched her deteriorate over the years to the point where she had to be put in a nursing home and where she was unable to move or feed herself. You have to come home. And so I was 21, my sister was 19. We had to make one of the worst decisions a child has to make about their parents. We had to decide whether she would get an operation to live, to prolong her agony, to prolong her life, or to do nothing and let her die. We chose to do nothing. And so that summer, I buried my mother. And so that Christmas... I asked, begin to ask questions that, that people throughout the ages have asked. I'd actually been asking those questions basically all my life, but I, I had a conversation with God. Where is God? Where is peace on earth that we sing about on Christmas? Where is hope? Today we're going to be looking at a book where a prophet asked these same questions. Where is hope? Why are the bad allowed to trample on the weak? Where is God? We're going to be looking at, at the book of Habakkuk. And I didn't say tobacco, I said Habakkuk. Many people are like, when I, they asked me, some people are like, what are you going to be preaching on? And I said, I'm going to be preaching on the book of Habakkuk. And they're like, is, is that a book? Is that in the Bible? Habakkuk asked questions that we are, have been asking since the dawn of time. But I want to give you some background of the book before we begin so you can picture yourself there. So here's some background of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a minor prophet in a time of turmoil. Let me say that again. Habakkuk was a prophet a minor prophet in a time of turmoil. You see, the promised land, because of poor leadership, because of the actually you could trace the poor leadership all the way back to Solomon, but let's fast forward a few hundred years, had deteriorated to the point where the kingdom had been divided. The land that God had promised that the people had gone into had been divided. Now it was the land of the wicked. It was disunified and divided. The kingdom of Judah had gone through a series of wicked kings. And and I'm not going to bore you with all these crazy names. But basically it was bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king. One of these kings was named Jehoiakim. And let me tell you about this guy. He was so wicked that... He had an inappropriate relationship not only with his mother, but his mother-in-law. But any person that that crossed him, he had killed. If he saw land or property, he would just kill you and take it. Instead of keeping his covenant relationship with God, 
he began to make covenants with other nations. First, with the Egyptians. Then, when he saw the Egyptians were losing, he had switched to the Babylonians. Then, when the Babylonians were losing, he was switched back to the Egyptians. Finally, the Babylonians got tired of that and killed him. This is the setting that the book of Habakkuk is in. Not much was written about him. He was a singer and a prophet. But it was set during a time when the people were being trampled on. When the people were being exploited. And when the people had turned away from God to idolatry. To their worshiping themselves. And so he has a conversation with God, not unlike many of you probably have conversations with God, asking the same questions that we ask today. So in today's sermon, we are going to be looking at this question and then seeing God's response. So please turn me to, to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you can move forward a little bit, actually, if you go through the slide, it'll go. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here we go. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The following is a message which God revealed to Habakkuk the prophet. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help? But you do not listen. I call out to you violence. But you do not intervene. Why do you force me to witness injustice? Why do you put up with wrongdoing? Destruction and violence confront me. Conflict is present. And one must endure strife. For this reason the law lacks power and justice is never carried out indeed the wicked intimidate the innocent and for this reason justice is perverted and back ask god he cries out actually that he says why why don't you listen you know sometimes it can feel like god doesn't listen to our prayers that he doesn't hear our prayers Just as Habakkuk was distressed, many of us may feel the same way. This is not something that's unique to our culture. It's interesting, I love history. It's interesting how the generation that's alive thinks that they are the best generation ever, that they have the newest ideas. But our questions are not new. They are the same as they were then. You know, David cried out to God, asking for him to answer him in Psalm 143, verse 1. Psalm 143, verse 1. He says, this right here. Oh Lord, hear my prayer. Pay attention to my plea for help. Because of your faithfulness and justice, answer me. And even Jesus cried out, Psalm 22, verse 1, while on the cross. Think about this. That the Son of God cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Habakkuk then asks the same question. I ask myself often, why is there injustice? Why do you put up with wrongdoing? Why is justice perverted? Why is justice perverted? You know, it seems like it's not just a one-time thing that Habakkuk's been doing. It seems like he's been crying out to God for a while. Because he sees a world that there's something wrong. He sees a world where there's problems. For those who say that the world is a good place, just open a newspaper or go online. Even in today, we have things like ISIS who, who are killing fellow believers, who are threatening everyone around them. We have terrorism. We have corrupt politicians. We have a, a justice system that is broken. Where if you are rich, you can hire a lawyer and get yourself off. But if you're poor or middle class, good luck. Even as a pastor, I've seen people who claim to follow God do some pretty horrific things with no consequences. Why? Why does God allow thing, bad things to happen? Habakkuk sees the evil around him and, and those in power that were exploiting, exploiting the poor, mocking God, who, who turned away from God to worship idols. And he asked, why? You know, I once had a, a, an elderly lady at one of the churches I pastored, who, and I loved her to death because she was always one, well, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you, honey. And she would. Well, one day we were talking, and she said, you know, I, I don't think that people should ever question why bad things happen. Because God has a plan. God's in charge. And while I agree with her theologically on that, you're going to ask why. And it's okay. Throughout the scriptures, people ask why. God's big enough for that. Today's postmodern society, we have tried to remove God from the picture either by making him powerless, by either saying bad things happen and God does not exist, or many believers will say, God would never, ever, loving God would never, ever love it, let that happen. We either make him non-existent or very small. God's all-powerful. Then there must be another reason. So far we've seen Habakkuk's cry. Now we see Habakkuk's confusion. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Chapters five, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Look at the nations and pay attention. You'll be shocked and amazed. For I will do something in your lifetime that you will not believe, even though you were forewarned. Look, I'm about to power the Babylonians. That ruthless and greedy nation that sweep across the surface of the earth, seizing dwelling places that do not belong to them. They are frightening and terrifying. For they decide themselves what is right 
Their horses are faster than the leopards and more alert than the wolves in the desert. And they gallop, and their horses go great distances. Like vultures, they swoop down and quickly devour their prey. Habakkuk is crying out, and then God shows up and begins to have a conversation. Now, now we don't see Habakkuk's response at first from this, because I don't know if he was expecting this. I mean, imagine yourself, if you're praying out to God, why God, why God? And you're like, you hear a voice. I'm going to do something that's going to amaze you, and you wouldn't believe it, even if I told you. Habakkuk has problems with this, but God tells him. God tells him, I'm going to use this evil people to discipline my people. And Habakkuk's like, what? What? He responds to God in verses 12 through 16. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Lord, you have been active from ancient times. My sovereign God, you are immortal. Lord, you have made them the instrument of judgment. Protector, you've appointed them as your instrument of punishment. You are too just to tolerate evil. You are unable to condone wrongdoing. So why do you put up with such a treacherous people? Why do you say nothing when the wicked devour the more righteous than they are? You've made people like the fish in the sea and the animals in the sea, and they have no ruler. And the Babylonian tyrant pulls them up with a fish hook and hauls them with his throw net where he catches them in a dragnet. He is very happy. Because of his success, he offers his sacrifices to his throne net and burns incense to his dragnet. For because of them, he has plenty of food with more than enough to eat. Habakkuk has problems with God's answer. He compares and contrasts the character of God versus the people that God plans on using. Let me say that again. He compares and contrasts the character of God to the very people that God plans on using. He says, God, you are just. The Babylonians are not. The Babylonians were pretty merciless. Um, the last king of Jerusalem, which this happens after uh, the judgment of God against the, the people of Judea, but the last king of Jerusalem, his sons were, were killed before his eyes. And then literally plucked out his eyes, threw chains on him, and took him to Babylonia, Babylon in captivity, where he died. This is the people that God plans on using to discipline God's chosen people. And so Habakkuk is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Naturally, he's confused. He's very, very confused. He's like, they're wicked. Everything they take, they, they don't give you glory. They don't give you praise. They take and they give themselves praise. They take and they worship themselves. They worship luxury. 
this is the why question that many people, including myself, ask God all the time. Why do you allow a world around you that does not worship you to prosper? Why do you allow people who are wicked to prosper? Why do you allow bad things happen and people get away with it? Why? When bad things happen, hope can diminish especially when we don't see a reason for it. When I did my, in seminary, I don't know if many of you know this, but before you can graduate, you have to do an internship with, with a pastor to get some experience, even though it's nothing like what you're going to experience as a full-time pastor, but it's supposed to get your feet wet a little bit. So I interned under this pastor near my sister for the summer, and, and every week we would meet together with the other pastors in the community and have, have coffee. Pray for one another, pray for the community. You know, typical pastor stuff. And the Methodist pastor, well, two things. Every time we'd meet, he would try to recruit me. He's like, we pay way better than the Baptist. <laughs> and, and then he, 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 after he said it to me, he's like, Jack, you'll never believe what I saw today. I'm like, what's that? He's like, I saw the most unusual but faith-inspiring thing with my associate pastor. He's like, my, my associate pastor, he'd been experiencing some discomfort, and finally, after his wife encouraging him, he went to the doctor. And that's nothing new. For those of you who are married, you get encouraged probably by your wife all the time to go to the doctor. But he's like, he goes to the doctor, and the doctor does a test, and he's like, I got some bad news for you. But also got some good news. The bad news is you have cancer. The good news is it's an extremely treatable form of cancer. It's got like a 99% success rate. But I want to do another test on you just to make sure you don't have any other cancer. So he does the test on him and he finds a tumor. And I forget which organ it was. It might have been, I think it was either the liver or the kidney. But the doctor said, I got some bad news. But then also got some good news. The bad news is you have a tumor. The good news is it is small enough where it's extremely treatable and you would have never discovered it until it was too late, not unless you had had this other type of cancer. And the pastor told me, he was like, I was seeing him off in the operating room and this guy was giving praise for God for his sickness because it just saved his life. Now, this isn't always the case, though. This isn't always the case. Many times we don't know why God allows something to happen. Where's God? So far, we've seen Habakkuk's cry, and we've also seen his confusion. Next, we see his confidence. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I will stand at my watch post, and I will remain stationed on the city wall. I will keep watching so I can see what he will say to me. And I'll know how I should answer when he counters my argument. The Lord responded, write down this message. Record it legibly on tablets. So the one who announces it may read it easily. 
For the message is a witness to what is decreed, and it gives a reliable testimony about how matters will turn out. Even if the message is not fulfilled right away, wait patiently, for it certainly will come to pass. It will not arrive late. It will not arrive late. Even though Habakkuk is confused, he says, I'm going to wait. And like many of us, he's like, you know what, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait to see what God has to say since I'm having a conversation with God. And then I'm going to give a counter-argument with God. I'm going to give a counter-argument with God. So, God makes an appearance. And he says that dreaded word that none of us like to hear. Wait patiently. Wait patiently. You know, that's something the majority of Americans don't like to do. Think about this. Think about our culture. We got fast food. We got fast internet. We even have Fandango. Why wait in line to see Star Wars when you can order a month in advance? We don't like to wait. We don't like to be patient. And God is telling him to wait and see what his plan is. Not what Habakkuk's plan is, but what his plan is. Because God's plan is bigger than anything that Habakkuk could ever have thought of or we could think of. In the rest of chapter 2 and 3, God shows that the wicked are are not going to prevail. Even the ones that he's using for his glory. He goes through all the vile things the wicked are doing and he says, you know what, Habakkuk, they are as good as dead. The Babylonians that I'm using are good as dead. They're just instruments of my plan. I'm going to use their wickedness and what they intend to be wicked I'm going to turn into good. In chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, if you turn to Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 16 through 19, Habakkuk has this to say about God and his plan. I listened, and my stomach churned. The sounds of my lip quivered. My frame went limp. As if my bones were decaying, and I shook as I tried to walk. I longed for the day of distress. Notice that he says, I long for the day of distress to come upon the people who attack us. When the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, and olive trees do not produce, and and the fields yield no crops. When the sheep disappear from their pen, and there are no cattle in the stalls. I will rejoice because of the Lord. I will be happy because of the God who delivers me. The sovereign Lord is my source of strength. He gives me the agility of a deer. And it enables me to negotiate the rugged terrain. Habakkuk, he states, even though we're going to face tough times, right now the people are being exploited by by themselves. That the Israelites, that these people who are supposed to be holy are being evil. 
And God says, I'm going to use an evil people to discipline you. Habakkuk says, times are going to get tough. But I'll trust in the Lord. That my confidence is in the Lord. And he goes through an allegory using images of everything being taken away. The olive trees. The grapes. The field. Now, if you're not a farmer, most of us are sitting here thinking, I, I don't know what this, all this stuff's for. Basically, he's saying God is stripping everything of substance away. And their faith is going to have to only be in one thing. That's God. He says things are going to get bad. They're going to get tough. They're going to get rough. And it may even look hopeless. But God is going to prevail over the wicked and his people are going to come back to him because he is disciplining them. You know, the world can look like a bad place. Because it is. That's one thing we tend to forget about is the world is a bad place. It's not a, a good place. Because of original sin. Because the judgment of original sin. It's like a cancer. It has twisted everything. It causes nature to be a place where dog eats dog. And because of original sin, we have death. But this Christmas, the one that we just celebrated, the one where we opened the presents and had over the tree and the family over, what was it about? Why did we actually do this? It's because we're celebrating the life that was brought to us. The deliverance that was given to us due to the death and resurrection of Jesus. We always, I like what Ben talked about, we always talk about baby Jesus. We picture baby Jesus uh, as, as Talladega Night. He's like, dear baby Jesus. But it's not about baby Jesus. It's about the offering, the sacrifice that God gave for, the, for us. It was to, to restore what is wrong and put what is right. And like Habakkuk, we need to trust God. Just as they waited a Messiah to come, just as they waited for deliverance, because this began a, a huge exile known as the Babylonian exile, and they were crying out for Messiah, deliver us from this slavery, deliver us. And it didn't happen for a very, very long time. We are waiting for our Messiah to come back. Evil is not one. Death is not one. And despair is not our master. Jesus brings us hope. Jesus brings us hope. There's a passage in the scriptures that talks about a time when, when the evil will be wiped away. And things will be anew and restored. Turn to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Revelation 21. Verses 1 through 4. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and new earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no longer. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, 
made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings, and he will live among them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will exist no no more longer. There'll be no mourning, no crying, or pain. For the former things have ceased to exist. And if you turn to 22 verse 3, it says this. 22 verse 3. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will worship him. You know... I, believe it or not, I don't look like a guy who probably does, but I, I like poetry. And there's a poet named Henry Longfellow. Fellow. I don't know if anyone's ever read him or not. He wrote the, the poem Hiawatha. And also he wrote, a poem, he wrote a poem called I Heard the Bells, which was turned into a hymn. I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Let me give you some background on him. He lost his first wife pretty early in his life. He was devastated by this loss. His son joined the army during a time of, actually, where I'm from, it's still a big deal, but a time of America's most violent time, the American Civil War, where brother fought brother over the issue, uh, the evil issue of slavery. And his son was wounded in combat. Now, being wounded in combat then, even though today it's still going to be pretty horrific, Back then, it was horrific because they didn't have modern medicine. There was no such thing as antibiotics. If you got shot, even if they were able to save your life, normally by cutting off an arm or a leg, you still typically died due to pneumonia or infection. Henry Longfeather, during this time, wrote this poem saying, you know, that there's evil in the world. Asking the same question as that Habakkuk asked, where is God Because, you know, all these things right here mock God. But then he says, you have Jesus. That good will prevail. We have hope. We have hope. God has a plan. Even though we may not understand why some things happen, His plan is much bigger than ours in scope and anything that we could ever imagine. And sometimes we'll never see the answer to that plan probably until eternity. Today's sermon, we've seen that Habakkuk's cry, we've seen his confidence, confusion, and we've also seen his confidence. And some of you may be thinking, okay, that's that's great. How, How does this apply to my life? Here's your challenge. When you go home tonight or today, write down on a piece of paper whatever is bothering you, whatever is pressing you down, your why questions. Then over it, write God is in control. God is in control. And hope prevails. Have hope.
then not, not just write it down, but try to live your life a life that is full of hope. That's the hard part. Saying it, writing it down is the easy part. Many of us know others that are suffering right now. Be hope to that person. Show the hope that you have in Jesus Christ to that person. That's why we have hope. It's because of Jesus. Tell others about that hope that you have. You know, that Christmas, I didn't, God never answered me. When I began, I was asking him the, the why questions. Unlike Habakkuk, I, I didn't have a, a revelation from God. And, you know, if I'd have heard a voice, I might have talked to someone. But I did get an answer later on. Not a full answer. I still don't understand why my mother had to suffer. I got a call that spring from my grandfather. And let me tell you a little bit about my grandfather. My grandfather was a, a coal miner, a rough and tough guy. He was a, a member of the union who had to sometimes, they originally were, were paid nothing. And they had to earn, basically fight their way to earn even a living wage. My grandfather also was pretty much an agnostic or an atheist. An agnostic, someone who say God may exist, but I don't care, or even know if, if, if he can't be proven. I remember when I told my grandfather that I felt God calling me to, to go to seminary. He was like, boy, you're wasting your life. Go make some money. You're better than that. Well, he gives me a call. And I'd been talking to my grandfather for about two years during this time. And he would, I would leave strategically leave the Bible tracks in the bathroom or on his, on his coffee table. And I would try to start conversations with him. And there was a few times he was like, I just don't want to hear it. But he gives me a call and he's like, Jack, I need to talk to you. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today. And I was like, what? Uh, you're kidding, right? He's like, no, I, I've lost everything this year. I've lost my home. I've lost my daughter. My pride is gone. I realized after losing everything, I just have gained everything. Let me say it again. He said, after I've lost everything, I've gained everything. Because I realized that there's someone bigger than me. That's God. And he gave his life to Christ. And he didn't become a perfect man. A lot of people expect you to become perfect after you become a Christian. But I saw my grandfather begin to live his life for something more than himself. And I saw hope in his life until he died. And I was like, God, this year has been horrible. It's been worth it. I miss my mother all the time. Every Christmas I think about her. But I know that God has a plan. And that there's hope. Yeah, the world could look like an evil and bad place. Because it is. But evil is not going to win. God is. Have hope. Let us pray. God, just thank you for today, and we thank you for the hope that we have, and 
Jesus Christ, your Son. I pray that if anyone here has never accepted this hope, that if they never have admitted that, that we're not perfect, that we need a Savior, and that Savior is your Son, I pray that they would do so today. I pray for those that are struggling right now this Christmas season, that they would have hope. That they would have hope in Jesus Christ. That, that no matter how bad things look, there is light that's going to pierce the darkness. And let us remember that Christmas is about that hope. In your son's name, amen.